A few years ago, BuzzFeed put together a list of the top 12 things that you would do if you were able to live forever. I'm not sure how formal of a poll this was. I didn't see you know, Gallup or Pew Research cited at all. Um, probably pretty objective list, but I found it interesting. Here they are. Number one thing that people would do is take up extreme sports. Number two, eat and drink what you want, when you want. Can I get an amen to that one? Number three, sleep till noon. Now, I, th I think there's a plenty of people that do this now. I don't know why you need to live forever for that. Number four, develop advanced knowledge of the stock market. And as they said, get paid, son. Now, I don't know. I've, that one left me a little confused. I'm not sure why you need to live forever to do that. Uh, I, I feel like that maybe something, if you could time travel, would be a more appropriate use of that one. But anyway, it's on their list. Number five, age all of your wine until it's priceless. Number six, get Zen AF. I, I really like this one. Number seven, make wingsuits a part of your daily commute. I don't know. Maybe we can make that happen here in Pittsburgh. We got enough hills and little mountains. Number eight, put the pedal down, take the turn fast, feel the wind in your hair. Number nine, repeat number eight, but this time in a BA speedboat. <laughs> Ten, become a music virtuoso. Eleven, travel everywhere on earth that you've always wanted to go. And number 12, travel everywhere you want that's not on earth too. I guess if we live forever, we can technologically, you know, be able to go through space travel. Well, as I read the list, what I found interesting on that list is that many of the things on that list have to do with putting our bodies to the limit. You know, extreme sports, wingsuits, uh, things like becoming a musical virtuoso, right? You know, training your body to do things that it can't do right now. If there was no consequence for things like extreme sports, right, people might push the envelope a little bit more than they do now. I know I love to eat, and I think it's a shame that the foods that are my favorite are the ones that are not really good for me. Right? What would it be like to not have to worry about heart attacks or cholesterol levels and be able to enjoy all those rich foods? I mean, con full confession, I probably would eat a carton of Oreos with milk as a meal with some regularity. Uh, that might, that's up there. It's one of my, I've got like four binge foods, and that's one of them. But that's not the world that we live in. We live in a society where death is that final frontier. It's viewed as the fundamental human problem. Death is that thing that will claim 100% of us no matter what you do to push it back. I don't know if you saw, um, on, I saw this on the news earlier, I think it was this week, it might have been two weeks ago, but uh, there is an extreme sports guy, a stuntman, someone who, you know, kind of in that uh, suit of evil Knievel. He was trying to break the world record for, you know, distance jumped on a motorcycle, and he died. He, he hit, like, the, the dirt mound straight on. This is someone who was trying to push the body to the limit, push physics to the limit, wasn't able to do it. Death's going to claim all of us. You can do what you will to push it back, right? You can avoid taking risks. You can diet and exercise. You can take your multivitamins, both the ones that you get over the counter and I, I know some of you, not necessarily, I'm not speaking specifically here, but there's a lot of people out there who like those, uh, the, those shady websites that promise these miracle supplements that they take as well. They, they, they might work, I don't know, but they're not going to save you in the end. You can practice meditation, you can practice mindfulness, things to lower your stress. Whatever you do, you will eventually die. 
Sometimes it feels like our journey here is trying to stave off this inevitable descent to the grave. Paul, St. Paul, when he was talking about the resurrection, said this in 1 Corinthians 15.32. He said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Basically, to paraphrase, if there is no hope of life after death, there is no motivation to live on the straight and the narrow now. If there's no resurrection, then we might as well occupy our time to live however we want. Let's party. Let's indulge every fancy that we might have. Because if the grave is the final word, then why bother with anything else? This parallels what the, I mean, this is, this is biblical wisdom. It parallels what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, right? That life is meaningless. Again, that's written satirically, sarcastically. It's not meant to be taken at face value in that way. But he's saying if, if, if you kind of just assume that living life of pleasures is all that there is and then you die, then life is meaningless. It doesn't matter in the end. One of the things that is true of our Christian conviction one of the things that it means to be a Christian is that our experiences here on earth are not the final stanza of our lives. We believe not only that there is life after death, but the Bible describes a physical resurrection. As N.T. Wright says, life after life after death. Right? We're not just going to exist in the clouds floating around in these like disembodied states of ghosts and spirits. But in the last days, we will be raised to new life with tangible physical bodies. Now, as I'm going to share in just a couple of moments, in the ancient world, that was a countercultural way to see things. And I think it, it continues to fly in the face of, of, a lot of a lot of our culture, whether it be kind of more Eastern religion or even just a lot of this secularized humanism that we have in our day and age. This week, we're going to affirm our belief in the resurrection of the body. So as has been our custom, let's add this on to what we know about the creed. We'll just finish it off, um, you know, make sure that life everlasting gets some due, so we're not just saying it next week. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to invite you to respond audibly, uh, and let's share this corporately. It, it will be on the screen. Friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So as we consider what it means to say that we believe in the resurrection of the body. I, I want us to kind of go kind of two parallel paths on this. I want us to consider where our hope comes from. Why is it that we believe that we will be resurrected, that our bodies, our flesh and blood bodies, will be brought back in, the, in kind of this age to come? But also, I want us to consider 
This is a little bit more on the conjecture side, the theoretical, but what will those bodies be like when we receive them? But before I go down those paths, I want to take a moment and ground this creed historically for us. What was going on in the ancient world? At the time of the writing of this creed, there was um, a branch of spirituality, of religion, whatever you want to call it, that was called Gnosticism. It was a very popular thing back in the day. Uh, There were Gnostics. There were all kinds of Gnostics. There were Jewish Gnostics. There were Greek Gnostics. There were Christian Gnostics. But it comes from the root word gnosis. Gnosis is the the Greek word which means knowledge. Gnosis with the G. Think of our word agnostic. Agnostic means someone, right, A, without knowledge. They feel like God might exist, there's a higher power there, but they don't have the, the knowledge or the wisdom to identify who that is. So that's kind of some of the, the language, etymology of that. So Gnostics believed that they had this special divine knowledge of how the world worked beyond what was considered typically considered orthodox or, or right practice, the right way to follow faith. But one of the key components to Gnosticism was this belief that everything physical, everything that you could touch and smell and taste and hear, was evil. But everything that was spiritual was good. So they would have taught that death was the opportunity for our soul or our spirit to be liberated from our bodies. In their minds, the soul, which was good, it was spiritual, it was like trapped in our body, and so it would be better off without our physical bodies, which they considered evil. But we just affirmed a bodily resurrection in the creed. Now, I hope you could see how this, this, this statement from the creed kind of flies in the face of what the Gnostics taught, right? The, that the final, as I just said, the final dwelling place of humanity was not some ethereal, disembodied existence with God in the clouds. But it was a physical, bodily resurrection of our frames. I mean, it doesn't take very long in reading the scriptures to see why Gnosticism was considered a heresy. considered outside of the bounds of faith, of Christianity. The Gnostics taught that matter was inherently evil and flawed. But man, you open open your Bible, you start reading Genesis chapter 1 right out of the gate, you see that God not only made the physical world that we dwell in, but he calls it, he declares its goodness. This aligns with what we see so often in scriptures. You, you won't get any argument from me that even though God created the physical world good, that it's fallen into some disrepair. It's been marred a little bit because of the fall. And that's what we see so often in scriptures, that when something is broken or marred, God doesn't just jettison that thing, but he works his restoration to return it to what, you know, whatever that object was, back to its original function was, how he had intended it. And that's good news for us, right? That God doesn't take damaged goods and throw it out like trash. But he renovates it. Our bodies have suffered from the fall. In the end, God's not just going to discard them, but will perfect them. So as we consider those resurrected bodies, we have an example 
We have a prototype, if you will, of where that hope comes from, right? We don't hold a belief in the resurrection of the body like some, you know, pie-in-the-sky theology, just wishful thinking. But the first Christians were eyewitnesses to this prototype. They were eyewitnesses, in the words of Paul, to the first fruits of the resurrection, right? That The first fruits, right? You, you grow something in your garden, those, those first crops that you're able, precious crops you're able to get, which show you that the plant is working the way it ought to. Right? The person of Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. As we examine what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ, we see that he was the truest version of humanity to ever exist. He succeeded in his connection with God and, and being a blessing to the world. Loving our neighbor is another way that you can think about that. In all those ways where we failed it. Paul connects Jesus Christ with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Where Adam failed, Jesus, the second Adam, triumphed. And this is one of the necessary reasons, we talked about this several weeks ago, but uh, necessary reasons to affirm the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Because if we only focus on the divini the, his divinity, we focus on his divinity and discard his humanity, right? that's something that would have been right up those Gnostics' alley. They would have been like... Jesus couldn't be God in the flesh. He was the spirit of God that had to take on human flesh. If, if we do that, I think Jesus loses his ability to function as our representative. Precisely because Jesus was fully God and fully man, we're able to follow that path that he paved for us. On that first Easter, when the stone was rolled away, Jesus Christ in the flesh walked out of that tomb. Not an apparition, not a ghost, but a flesh and blood body. A body who Thomas was able to touch. A body that on multiple occasions was able to eat with his disciples post-resurrection. In fact, there, there's this uh, um, scene where he appears on the shore and the disciples are out fishing and they say, it says that they think that he is a ghost. And was he really a ghost or was it just because they had seen him die? But the point is, I think it's, it's so interesting that he sits down and eats with them. It, it, it's his way to showcase. It's like a tangible expression that I am not a spirit. I'm not a phantom. I am flesh and blood. You see the same thing with the raising of Jairus' daughter. Jesus raises her from the dead, and what, what is she supposed to do? Get her something to eat. It was almost like their proof that this was a living, breathing being. Jesus Christ rose from the dead with a new body, and so will we. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read verses 42 to 49. Paul says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Here he's using this agricultural metaphor of seeds being planted in the ground. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, in saying that, I don't want you to get confused that because when he says natural, that he means physical, and when he means, says spiritual, he means this kind of ethereal body. That's not what he means, right? Because you have a seed that you plant in the ground. Right? Let's say you plant an apple seed. It's not going to become a grapevine. The seeds stay kind of in the same pathway, the same trajectory. They are true to themselves, but it's reaching a higher level of existence in that trajectory, if that makes sense. So what is sown is a natural body is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Paul can be really confusing sometimes. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. We are physically descended from Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. We are spiritual descendants of Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what Paul's saying is there is this unification of bearing, right? this, this unification of a body, but that has been raised to glory in the same way that Jesus has been. So our future will bear the marks of the man of dust as well as the man of heaven. We will have bodies, but they will somehow be changed to reflect the grandeur of the perfected body that Christ donned after his resurrection. Now, we don't precisely know what this will entail. I mean, in fact, two verses later in that 1 Corinthians 15 text, Paul says that this very thing is a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, die, but we all shall be changed. He doesn't, ex he doesn't uh, pretend to know the mechanism by which that happens or what it'll look like in the end. He just is trusting that our pathway will be the same pathway that Jesus in his death and then resurrection. Because Jesus is the model for our resurrected body. But for me, it begs the question, what will, the, what will those bodies be like? Philippians 3, 20 to 21, Paul reiterates the stuff that we've been saying. He says that Jesus Christ is the model for what our bodies will take. He says, starting at verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So our new bodies will be like Christ's glorious bodies. And I think that tells us a few things. First, I think it reiterates that our new bodies will be linked to our old, even though they might be somewhat different. After Jesus rose from the dead, he was recognizable as Jesus by his disciples. Often not at first, but he was there. Right? You have Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, spots Jesus, mistakes him for the gardener. Now, is this because Jesus actually looked different? Or, or is it, could it be perhaps because Mary, in her grief, could not imagine that it was Jesus standing in front of her? Especially because two days, you know, of however many hours ago that would have been, you know, 40 hours beforehand. She had watched him brutally murdered on the cross. You also had the men walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus tags along with them. Actually, there's a really good BBC article that I read this morning um, about a, a um, painting that Michelangelo, not like the famous Michelangelo that did the Sistine Chapel, but a different Italian painter named Michelangelo, who... Uh, did, did a, a picture of this, and it's beautiful, filled with all kinds of Christian imagery. But I was going to talk about it today, but I thought it would be too much of an aside. All right, so, so they're on their way on to Emmaus. Jesus tags along with them, and what does the scripture say? It says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That is until later in the day when they sat down to share a meal together, and he broke bread for them, something that he probably did 
countless times when they walked the earth together. Then their eyes were opened. Again, was it that Jesus looked different or was there a reason that they weren't supposed to recognize him? I think the point in these texts is that we're supposed to understand that there is a strong correlation. Again, I'm not saying it's necessarily one-to-one, but a strong correlation between pre and the post-resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have any of you guys seen the movie Hook? Classic movie. Right? Robin Williams plays this grown-up Peter Pan. It's like the sequel to Peter Pan. Right? Peter's become a boring, he's like an accountant or something. I can't remember exactly what his, uh, his job is. But in it, he's, kind of, he's lost touch with his childlike spirit. So kind of through this process, he returns to Neverland. He can't fly. Like, he really can't do much of anything that he used to be able to do. He doesn't even really recognize his past as Peter Pan himself. But there's this pivotal scene. I would say it's probably the, the kind of the emotional turning point of the movie, where one of the smallest lost boys, you know, kind of pulls Peter down to kneel down, and he takes off his glasses, and he begins, like, touching and playing with his face. And then he pulls his lips back in the form of a smile. And he breaks out grinning. And he says, oh, there you are, Peter. And Peter was there all along, but the lost boys didn't recognize him at first. I think that's what happened with Jesus after his resurrection. Jesus Christ's resurrected body maintained the essence of who he was here on earth, but it took some searching to find. It may have been clouded a little bit. So what that means for us is that when we receive resurrected bodies, I believe that they will bear a strong resemblance to the essence of our physical bodies in the here and now. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that I'll be, you know, like Chris in my prime, in my 20s, if I'll have this, you know, present 39-year-old body, which is a little sore and achy today, right? I probably won't have sores and aches in heaven, but, you know, maybe my 39-year-old body, or maybe it'll be what I look like 20 years from now. I have no idea. What I do know is that it will be me. J.I. Packer said it this way. He said, raising of the body means restoring of the person. And what he means by that is that when God raises us from the dead, it will be all of me, not just a part. Now, I'll acknowledge there can be conundrums in this process, right? Like, think about this from a scientific perspective. That's where my background is, and so I always go there. Right? The cells of my body are made up of molecules, of atoms, of matter that like, has been circulated through our world over hundreds and thousands of years. Right? My body might contain the materials of someone who lived 2,000 years ago. As my dynamic body goes through its normal repair process, right? creating new layers of skin, shedding the old as dust, That dust gets circulated and spawns other, not it doesn't spawn, but it becomes the building blocks for other organisms. So when my resurrected body is reconstituted, like what molecules do I get made up from? I think another way you could say this that probably has more actual application than, you know, this theorizing like what molecules my body be made up of. But what about people who are cremated when they die? You know, there's a, a, a rich history in the Christian church of people who were who were died, like who were buried, right? Their bodies were buried in anticipation, preparation for the resurrection. In fact, I think it's a thing that a lot of these places were buried facing east, because that was the idea that Jesus was going to come from the east, and we could see him when we come from the grave. But that's a, a growing trend uh, for saving of space and all those types of things. Is what about people who are cremated? Are the, are they going to be able to be reconstituted? 
what will those skeleton, their building blocks, look like? Frankly, I, I don't know the answer to that question, how it's going to happen. Just because I don't have scientific forethought as to what it will be like does not undercut God's ability to do it. The scientific law of the conservation of matter says that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. There's this little asterisk if it can be transformed. We're not going to go there. But if matter can't be created or destroyed, I can't create matter. You can't create matter. But you know who can create matter? The Lord. He did it once before, at least once before, right? When, when he created the universe from nothing. Creation ex nihilo, as the theologians call it. God exists outside the bounds of those rules. So if he created something from nothing before, he can surely do it again. So again, those are like conundrums that might come up from this, but I don't have answers to them. I don't anticipate that I ever will have answers to them, but I think the questions kind of don't matter, if you will, in the long scheme of things. God is able. Let's not undercut his ability. So our bodies will be similar. There there will be a sameness to who we are now as to who we will be when we're raised from the dead. But from Jesus, we also see that our bodies will be different. After the resurrection, there are a number of different accounts of disciples hanging out in locked rooms. Now, this was completely understandable by them because you're part of an assembly, this group of people, who is seen as a threat to the Roman Empire, whose leader was just brutally murdered, and you're a little, you know, anxiety starts to set in. You're like, what if I'm next, right? What if they come for me next? I'm next on the chopping block. So the disciples, they're meeting in secret, They're behind locked doors, and then seemingly out of nowhere, like Jesus appears in their midst. Jesus' resurrected body doesn't always follow the laws of physics. Within the last few weeks, uh, the family was reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as part of the Bible reading plan. And the end of that chapter discusses the return of Jesus, and uh, it's a passage of scripture, uh, it's a portion of scripture that's often used to defend the, the doctrine of the rapture, um, I'm not going to get into that. I wish I was going to be. I'm, I'm going to miss small group in two Wednesdays when we talk about that. Because I personally don't hold to the rapture. There's a lot of people that do, and that's fine. Um, you know, if you want to hear my thoughts on that, maybe that's a good FAQ question to ask. But anyway, that, that's, th- there's this passage that says that Jesus is going to descend from heaven, and there'll be the sound of the trumpet, and the dead are going to be raised first. And then those of us who are alive are going to be caught up into the clouds to meet with Jesus. Now, as soon as I finished reading that chapter, Elizabeth turns to me and she asks, she's like, does this mean that our resurrected bodies are going to have flying powers? I've got no idea, but I like the way her mind works in this, right? The point is that there is going to be some difference between it, right? If Jesus was able to, to defy the laws of physics, to be one place one time and then kind of tele- seemingly teleport somewhere else, we might have some of those opportunities as well. Maybe we'll have flying powers. Maybe we'll have, you know, we'll be like Nightcrawler or the X-Man and be able to teleport. I don't know. But I don't know what that'll be like. But what I do know is that we won't have to worry about the natural decay that our bodies experience now. Consequences of the fall will be repaired and be complete. Susan was a leader in one of the churches that I served at. She was, she is, she's she's still alive. Uh, She is a passionate follower of Jesus. But Susan was born with only one leg, and her entire life she's had to adapt. She has a, a, she's had a prosthetic for most of her adult life, and she is really proficient with it. If, if you didn't know, 
uh, this about her. Um, you might notice that she walks with a little bit of a limp, but you would have no idea that, you know, in her pair of jeans that only one of those legs is flesh and blood and the other is uh, something that's, that's artificially made. But I remember sitting down in some Sunday school classes that I had with her where we would talk about what life in heaven would be like. And I'll never forget Susan in her anticipation for God's kingdom anticipating the time that she would be whole again, that she would have both of her legs in working order, that she could run and frolic for the first time in her life. Susan looked forward to the day when her resurrected body would be different from her earthly one. I think of a message that I heard from Kathy Humphrey at the time. Kathy Humphrey was the dean of students at the University of Pittsburgh. She was speaking at our college fellowship sharing about what it meant to you know, pursue and glorify God at, in a secular academic environment. But right before her talk, Kathy began sharing about the recent death of her aunt. And her aunt had been suffering from cancer for some time, and the family had prayed regularly for God's miraculous touch to heal her of her sickness. In the end, her aunt died. But I'll never forget it. Kathy paused for a moment and boldly proclaimed that her aunt had been healed that God had freed her from her sickness. What they had prayed for and longed for in life, that promise had been fulfilled in her death. Kathy was awaiting a time when she would see her aunt whole again with no sickness in her body, never again having to be separated by the sting of death. We have hope in the resurrection of Jesus that we too will experience new life. The Christian faith teaches that we will experience a release from bondage. Not like the Gnostics, not that our soul, you know, is going to experience liberation from our bodies and death, but instead that God himself will triumph over death, over sickness, over depression, over anxiety, over birth defects, over addiction. We will still be us, but the way that God intended us to be from the beginning. Right? Glory be to God for his faithfulness in our lives. Right? Hallelujah. That he has given us a hope that the brokenness that we experience in part in the present is not going to be part of our future. Now before we close, I have one more direction that I want to steer this message. And this is, I'm going to acknowledge, this is purely conjecture. But I think it's conjecture that's rooted in Scripture. This is one of these places that I want to give us permission to kind of imagine, you know, using the Bible as our reference guide, but imagining, not with any high degree of certainty, but having a, a, this creative imagination of, of the grandeur of God and what he might communicate through things like the resurrection. Now, I just shared that our resurrection bodies will be free from the blemishes that they were in life, but it is possible that there might be some blemishes that will remain, that are going to make it through. And I'm going to expand what I mean by that in a moment. But I want to make sure that it's important to point out that if they do, those blemishes will not cause us pain or anxiety or sadness anymore. That, I think, is clear that the Bible teaches. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, uh, John, the author, uh, this, the apostle, the one that Jesus loved, John is anticipating what God is doing in the world. But there's this hurdle. Right? There's this scroll that needs to be opened, but there's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who is worthy to open the scroll. And so John, like, it's almost like having that, that feeling of just being unfulfilled, like, it's so close, but I can't get there. And so he just begins to weep 
And one of the elders comes to John and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the seal and its seven the scroll and its seven seals. And then John describes what he sees. I quote, A lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's clear through all this evidence, right, that the person that John sees is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But then what follows is this language of a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And I think this clearly has to be a reference to the wounds of the crucifixion that Jesus endured. See something similar right after the crucif- uh, Christ's resurrection. We also see this depiction of Jesus bearing his wounds. He had appeared to some of the disciples. They had shared the report kind of to the group. And, you know, you had Thomas, doubting Thomas. Some people say he should be called Faithful Thomas, but that's another thing. He was unconvinced. He's like, Jesus was dead. I saw him die, you guys. You're out of your minds. What, what did he actually say? Unless I see and place my fingers in his scars, in the marks of the nails, as the text says, place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Well, what happened? Jesus appeared, offered his nail-scarred hands, his wrists, to Thomas. These pictures together lead me to believe that Jesus bears the marks of his crucifixion for eternity in heaven. They are scars, right? They are not open wounds. They do not cause pain, but they tell stories. They tell the story of God's faithfulness to his people, the lengths that the Trinity would go to in order to redeem a wayward humanity. The scars are a testament to the, the, the evil that humanity was capable of, the, the, the best effort that the enemy could throw at God, but they also represent a testament to the great love of God. If I'm using the same logic as earlier, that Jesus' body is a prototype for ours, then I think that leads to believe, it's a possibility, if we're going to kind of extrapolate a bit, that we also may have scars in our resurrected bodies in heaven. But again, let's be clear, the purpose of these scars, doesn't mean that all scars that we have, but the purpose of these scars are to be a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people, showcasing his glory for all to see, telling stories. Last October, I shared, this story just always kind of surrounds me. Um, it's just always in kind of the back of my mind. But last October, I shared about the, uh, you may remember, the 21 Coptic Christians who were killed by ISIS. This was back in 2015 that this happened. But I shared it in a story back in, in October. These Christians uh, like, were, were blindfolded. I mean, I can still see the image from the, the you know, because ISIS videotaped it, the, the terror mongering that they often do. They were blindfolded. They were kneeling on a beach in Libya when ISIS agents came up behind them and slit their throats. I remember talking to college students about this event with tears in my eyes, imagining, like, what if, it may not be how it works, but what if these men in heaven all bore scars, thin scars, along their neck in their resurrected body, as a testimony to the perseverance of these men, the steadfastness with which they held up to intense persecution, and, and as a tribute to the great and faithful God that they served. I think it's entirely possible that there are marks that we might bear on our body that tell the stories of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Now, I know this morning was was an abstract exercise. Like, when we consider 
life, what life will be like after death, it's hard to make it concrete for us. It's not anything we've experienced yet. It's not anything that we really anticipate experiencing today or tomorrow. Next week, we're going to close out the creed. We're just ending here because it's all future stuff with another abstract concept. What, what are we going to do for eternity? Believing in life everlasting. Well, I know a lot of Christians who feel like, man, this is going to be boring. We're just going to play our harps in the clouds and sing. That's, as you can guess, I don't agree with that. But even though this, all these truths might be a long way off for us, I think there are some tr- transcendent things that we can take and hold on to in the here and now. First, we saw, because of the resurrection and the affirmation of that, that we can continue to affirm that the physical creation is good. We're not like the Gnostics. We're not looking down our noses at everything physical and just awaiting the the spiritual. God created the world that we live in, matter and all, and blessed it, calling it good. We recognize that the creation has been subjected to futility because of the fall. Things don't work the way they were supposed to. Death entered the picture, that harbinger of doom for the human race. But God in his goodness has redeemed all of us. He's redeemed all of it. The way that he's redeemed our spirits through faith, he's also going to redeem our physical bodies through resurrection. We will not suffer pain and strife as we do in today's world. And lastly, we saw in all of this, whether we continue to bear marks, scars or not, We saw in all of this that the goal is to God be the glory. That God's going to be honored with our lives. He's going to be honored in our deaths and our lives after death. Join me in prayer. Lord, as we look forward waiting for the resurrection, may we hold fast into this hope. Putting aside all these cultural images of you know, us somehow becoming angels in heaven or becoming spirits or whatever it might be, but recognizing the final resting place with you, God. It is is in body form. Guide us in how we can apply that and live into this, knowing that our bodies will be us in essence, but yet stripped of all of the, the, the things that cause us woe in the here and now muscle pain, sickness, death. May we trust in your goodness so that we can say, just like Paul did in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hallelujah, in Jesus' name. Amen.